0: Our story today comes from producer Alex Atak, and it starts in a ballroom inside the Copley Plaza Hotel in Boston, Massachusetts.
1: If the room had rafters, you'd say it was packed to the rafters. But it didn't, because rooms as fancy as this generally don't. Instead, it had chandeliers, probably at least eight of them. The edges were lined with wide doorways, and heavy curtains were pulled shut over those to keep the sound in. The room was so full that... In a photograph taken from the stage that evening, the date was October 9th, 1919, the entire bottom half of the photograph is just faces crowded around tables in rows that go all the way to the back of the room. It was a political event. Influential Americans like the governor of Massachusetts sat at tables with influential Armenians like Armenia's prime minister at the time.
2: The Armenians were trying to create support in the United States. And so this prime minister had come to try to draw up support political support and military support from the United States. And so this dinner was held in honour of him. This is the
1: writer, Mariam Mesrobian-McCurdy. Her grandmother was in the room that night, sitting somewhere near the front on table number 34.
2: Um, so she was very proud to have been asked to attend and be there. This is a, a really big event for her and for most of the people in the community.
1: It was four years after the end of the event that came to define the first part of the century for Armenians the Ottoman army's campaign of terror in which they massacred 1.5 million Armenians. Today we call it the Armenian Genocide, but that word, um, a word used to describe massacres as horrific as these, didn't exist in the English language at the time. It was literally indescribable. So in that room on that night in October 1919, the Armenian community was gathered to rally support for the future of their nation and for their fellow Armenians back home in the old country.
2: That dinner was an effort to create this urgency and interest to collect money, to collect support in order to try to maintain um, what they had started um, as a separate Armenian nation. The whole idea was to try to convince these important dignitaries to shell out the money and the effort to, to, to support the Armenian cause.
1: And the Armenian cause at the time was to try and build support for the newly independent First Republic of Armenia. It had been under Ottoman rule for about 500 years by that point. So I imagine that the room was loud with the chatter of cutlery and conversation when after everyone had finished their dinner, a 25-year-old soprano singer called Zabel Panosian stepped onto the stage wearing an Armenian flag and she began to sing.
3: It's a, it's a song that she knew. Um, they're old words.
1: It's not something new that she wrote. This is the music researcher and producer, Ian Legowski.
3: But the lyrics are approximately... Uh, Crane is what Grunk means. It's, um... Crane, where are you coming from? I am servant of your voice. Crane, have you not news from home? Hasten not to your flock. You will arrive
1: soon enough. When her performance of this song, Gurung, finished, the room apparently erupted into, quote, thunderous applause.
2: It is the yearning. It's the yearning. Just think of what they were feeling at the time. There's just, there are no words to describe it. So you move to art, you move to song.
1: We don't know who else performed on the stage that night or what other songs they might have sang or what other speeches they might have spoken. The memory that survives is of Zabel's performance. It survived in a photograph, uh, the one taken from the back of the stage, looking out over the packed audience. Marion's grandmother, Eliza, who remember was in the crowd that night, she held on to that photograph. It hung on her wall at their home in Syracuse, New York, for the rest of her life.
2: She put that on her dining, over her dining room buffet, when they moved in. And it stayed there until we took it down after her death. And after her death, we flipped it over and we saw this note on the back. It had Zabel's name on it.
0: But that name, Zabel Panosian, wouldn't have meant anything to many people by the time Marion found it on the back of her grandmother's picture. Because even though Zabel was an extremely talented Armenian-American singer who could do insane things with her voice and toured the world to raise money for her people at a critical time in their history, a couple of decades later, she was almost completely forgotten in public memory.
3: How do I think of her story? I think of her as a cipher. I think of her as a, a ghost. Uh, she's someone who was forgotten. She was completely left behind. And I think it was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened. She didn't deserve it.
0: Today on Kerning Cultures, we look back at this time in Armenian history in America, at the musical prodigy that was the Pinozian, and how all of it somehow seemed to fade away. I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination is the, the streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures.
1: Here's Alex. Ian first heard Zabel's voice on a record given to him in 2010.
3: Around that time, I met a guy named Leo Sarkeesian, who was an extraordinary person, a um, broadcaster at the Voice of America for many, many years, and he saw that I was interested and dedicated. And you know, he was in his 90s and in the process of kind of dispersing a lot of his collection, and Leo gifted me his. 78 RPM record collection which included his father's and uncle's 78 RPM record collections. And within those there was a copy of a, a record by Isabel Panosian and it, there was a just a crack um, through uh, half the record. The crack was pretty tight so the, the needle went through the groove and it was covered in little scratches but it was flat And, um, and I, you know, I put the needle on the record, and I went like, "Hmm, okay, classical vocal thing, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, so, okay, well, this is quite good, oh, wait, and she hits that note. and then the note descends. There's this lament-like collapse at the end of the note, and her voice breaks a little bit inside of it. And I said, okay, how the hell did this record ever get made? You know, you put the needle on the record, you listen to it, you like it, and one of the first things you do is you Google it, okay, is this being talked about? Does anybody else know or care? And, you know, the funny thing was, you know, there was just nothing at at all in 2010. So it's like, OK, we have a blank space here.
1: So he went to uh, this music archive called the Richard K. Spotsworth's Discography. It's a kind of volume of every uh, non-English language record that was known to have been made in America between 1893 and 1941. And um,
3: so there I went to the Armenian section
1: and okay, there she is.
3: You know, Panosian, Zabel. And so I had a list of the, the records she made and, and the dates for their recording. Um, and then that was it.
1: So the next thing he did was he tried ALMA, uh, the Armenian Museum of America in Watertown, Massachusetts.
3: And at ALMA, I looked to see what Zabel Panosian records they had. And... They had this huge pile of them. And Grunk, which it seemed to me initially was very rare, because it's nothing on the internet about it. Right? So you think like, oh well this record must not have sold very well. No. They had like twenty of them, thirty of them, of this record,
4: right? Just this stack of Grunk. Grunk means crane. It's a migratory bird, and it basically flies south for the winter.
1: This is Harry Kazelian. He's a high school history teacher, but also uh, an Armenian-American history and music researcher. As you can hear, I spoke to him via Skype.
4: So in the Middle East, in the sort of early modern period, like the sixteen, seventeen, eighteen hundreds, 17, 1800s, um, there was a lot of migration from historical Armenia. And um, they're migrating south to places like Aleppo, uh, Baghdad, Damascus, and they'd see the crane flying from the north and it's coming from their perspective it's coming from Armenia okay and it's coming south for the winter into the area they're in and so it says which means from where are you coming I'm a servant to your voice which is just kind of like a um, it's like how you talk actually it's how you talk to a king so they're saying your voice or whatever it is you're gonna say I'm 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 like indebted to you. I want to hear what you're gonna say. And which means do you have Khabrik, do you have a piece of news from our country? That's what the song is talking about. And so um over the centuries it kind of became this anthem for Armenians being in diaspora, for Armenians living in other countries, you know, whether they were really south of historic Armenia or not. And then After the Armenian genocide happens, it becomes even more powerful. I mean, these songs take on a new meaning that after the Armenian genocide happened, it becomes sort of about the genocide, even though it was written in the 1600s.
1: Nobody really knows exactly who wrote Gurung. Um, it's just the kind of song that's always been around and passed down through folklore tradition. But the person who transcribed and recorded an early version of it was the composer and priest Gomitas, probably the most famous Armenian composer that ever lived.
2: My guess is, without Gomitas'
1: transcription, it would have been lost. This is Marian Mesrobian-McCurdy again. Uh, I introduced her earlier as a writer, but she also happens to be a trained classical singer.
2: And if not lost, you know, kind of handed down in ways that were very, would be very difficult to, to try to
4: find.
1: So Harry had known the song forever, but he said he'd never heard it sung like this, the way Zabel
4: sung it. She sings it with a different, with a different um, melody. You see, that song is so iconic in Armenian culture that it's always sung with the same melody and pretty much the same arrangement. And so today, when you sing a different version than what's the sort of the common version, it's like, OK, like, what are you doing? Well, and secondly, she does this whole crazy vocal, you know, pyrotechnics where she goes way up and then kind of descends. And, you know, I mean, you can hear it on the record. I mean, it's it's beautiful.
2: You know, there are a lot of well-trained and good singers out there. It's the musicality that sells a song. And if you listen to other recordings of Gronk, they're not going to sound like that. What Panossian does is she just hangs there on that note and she just sits there and she doesn't press. All of this is done with an intense amount of control. Um, and, and that's partly what makes this such a tour de force, because anybody can sing a high note loud. That's easy, you know, but pianissimo and extending it, her control is, is, is masterful.
3: It does not bear melodic resemblance to any of the other grunks
1: that uh, we have on records. So once Ian had managed to uh, place the song title and the year from the info he'd found at Ulmer, he digitized the record and published it on a CD compilation called To What Strange Place?
3: So I spent days making a transfer and a nice clean uh, restoration of it and included it on this project that was published as a three-CD set. And I initially thought that it was a setting of a poem by a guy named Tumanian. And I published that that's what it was. And because I only read and speak English, didn't know until the thing was already published that I was wrong. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, it's totally not that poem.
4: Yeah, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to be insulting. So you can, you can pick and choose how much of this you want to, you know, use. But basically, I mean, the the man was limited by the way he could do research. He didn't, you know, know anybody personally who knew any of these artists or, you know, if he read an Armenian name and there was a variation spelling of the name, he wouldn't necessarily know that that's the spelling of that same name or whatever, things like that. And so, you know, some of his information was wrong. And so I'm kind of like, obsessive compulsive and I'm like okay I, I gotta fix some of this I was like going on Facebook and messaging him uh, listen uh, this is wrong and this is wrong and you've got to change this and, but great job
1: but uh, despite some of the obvious mistakes in the write-ups that Ian had done to accompany the album Harry told me that he was still really impressed by it
4: basically um, at the time nobody had ever remastered or re-released uh, Armenian American recordings that were made in the 1920s and I had a bunch of them on record because I collect records, but I had never heard anyone clean them up or put them on CD or anything like that. So when that came out, I was like, wow. And a lot of them were songs I hadn't heard or I I, I didn't have or whatever. And so it was like, you know, just awesome. I was like, who, who is this guy? And I guess his his objective was that he wanted to show how there was this sort of Middle Eastern scene of music in America all the way back in like you know the early 1900s and that like you know middle eastern people shouldn't be considered foreign in america or whatever and t- to me that kind of just like went over my head cuz i'm like well duh there were armenian people and like greek people and stuff and singing turkish and everything in america in like 1920 like i like that's my great grandparents basically so like i didn't even think about that being a revelation so Harry reached out to Ian uh,
1: and helped him with some corrections on the album. And they struck up a kind of friendship, Harry in Detroit and Ian
4: in Baltimore. So at first, he was kind of like, he didn't know who the hell I was. He was like, this is just some random kid. And then I guess he kind of realized I I knew what I was talking about in terms of the research and the history.
1: And together, along with another guy called Haru Arakalian, uh, they started to slowly investigate and piece together Zabel Ponosian's story.
3: And so I, I really got obsessed with her and started trying to track down as much information as I could. And that's sort of what set the ball rolling. Well, she's definitely born June 7th, and I think about uh, 1890. The earliest date we have is 1889. The latest date we have is uh, 1894. She immigrates ap- April uh, 1906 from Ireland. Her father was Protestant clergy, and the family had been working there and she and her family are living in um, Lowell, uh, Massachusetts. And when she's about 19, she gets married to a guy who's 12 years older than her, who's a photo engraver named Aram Sarkis Panosian. Then about a year later, she has her first child, and about two years after that, her mother dies at home of alcoholism. So she
4: had an extraordinary kind of first 20 years of her life. So she came to America, and she started taking vocal lessons and really wanted to become a really trained singer um, from all these, you know, just vocal teachers in the Boston area, which is where she lived. She was a background singer of the Boston Opera
3: Company. That period, the the beginning of the 19-teens, is the peak of the popularity of opera in the United States. There are two big opera houses in New York City, And so they decided in Boston, they were going to build one. Um, So Zabelle was around the best singers in the
4: world. Then she starts to appear at like these basically fundraisers for the people that are being affected by the Armenian genocide that's basically the beginning of her career.
1: So she was performing in these like big music halls with the Boston Opera Company, uh, as well as at smaller Armenian community events. But the start of her career around the early part of the century was taking place at a time when the way people listened to music was beginning to change. If you were a singer before the 1890s, your music would really have only ever been heard live while you're performing in front of an audience. Uh, music was this kind of ephemeral thing in that way. But by the end of the 1890s, we start to see the invention of early recording technology.
3: And initially, people who listen to the singing of songbirds. they're trying all different kinds of stuff. There are recordings of birds that are successfully marketed, there are recordings of people laughing that are successfully marketed. <laughs> there are all kinds of things that the companies are just
1: trying to see what maybe people will buy. And the invention of recording this huge event in human history overlap with another huge and important period in American history. The
3: first decade of the 20th century is the single largest wave of immigration to the United States in our history. 1907 is the single largest year of immigration to the US per capita of any year in American history. A thousand people a day at that point, are arriving just through one port, just through Ellis Island.
1: Ellis Island, which is in New York, and nearby also happened to be some of the biggest record companies in the US at the time. So Columbia Records in Manhattan and Victor Records in New Jersey. And both of those studios,
3: about the same time, about 1904, 1905, 1907, somewhere in there, both of those studios realize there are a thousand people a day coming to New York City. Will they buy some records?
1: And so they tried a bunch of different stuff. They sent staffers on trips around the world to uh, gather and record music that they'd then try and sell to immigrants from those countries back home in America. They got some of the best and most talented classical artists into their New York City studios to record these, like, highbrow classical pieces. But what they found sold the best were just the simple, nostalgic records.
3: They get the idea. You record the down-home, rural folk village music, whatever it is. The stuff of the actual class of people who are entering the country, who are largely blue collar, working people who are going to, you know, they're peddlers and they're working in butcher shops and steel mills and whatever it is. So they start recording all this stuff that reminded people of home, that sounded like something they remember. And those records take off.
1: And it was somewhere during this push to record what they called quote-unquote ethnic artists that Zabel wound up in the Woolworth building in Lower Manhattan. She would have walked past the entryway under the ceiling murals that made the place feel a bit like a church, taken the coal-powered elevator up to the studio. She would have stepped out of the elevator and into the recording studio and stood behind a microphone that looked more like a telescope to record her album.
3: There are horns of various sizes set up in a room in a recording studio. It's a purely mechanical process. There is no electricity involved at all in recording at that time. And the recording engineers show the performers a green card to tell them when the machine is running and they should start. And then... They sing into the horn. The vibrations of their music making, of singing or whatever, flow down through the horn and vibrate a little diaphragm. And that vibrates, and that vibrates the needle, which cuts into a thick wax disc. And then when the needle is getting to the end of the disc, they're shown a yellow card, which means you got 10 seconds. Wrap it up. And so a person who buys that record puts a a steel needle with pounds of pressure per square inch into the groove, that needle vibrates a diaphragm. The vibrations of that diaphragm flow out of a tube, out of a horn, and into the room, and recreate the same vibrations that were captured in the room on the day of the performance. It's a direct recreation of the memory of that person during that three minutes of their life.
1: Typically the quote-unquote ethnic musicians like Zabel, they were only given two or three takes to get their performance right. Uh, The studios just didn't want to waste their resources. So the performers had to time their songs to fit into two to two and a half minutes. But when Zabel came in to record, The engineers at Columbia gave her seven takes to record Gorong.
3: So that in and of itself is a sign of enormous respect. I mean, you have to be a serious singer to get seven takes. And that song sells. They kept it in print from 1917 until 1931. They keep it in print constantly for almost 15 years. In fact, it was maybe the best-selling or second-best-selling Armenian record of the 19-teens and 20s.
1: Zabel's version of Gorung was released two years after the start of the events that we now call the Armenian Genocide, the planned and systematic murder of around 1.5 million Armenians by the Ottoman government. In
3: 1915, 100,000 Armenians in the United States are beginning to get the news that everything back home has fallen apart that, uh, you know, there are these arrests, and then that uh, the villages are being destroyed, that the government has taken over your old house, um, whatever you left behind, and that the population is being liquidized from all over Anatolia. All of these Armenians are being rounded up and killed. And so 1915, 100,000 Armenians are finding out that there's no home to go back to and that everyone they ever knew is dead. The world they came from just doesn't exist anymore. And they are having a hard time getting news. It's, it's impossible to say what that was like. So it's a song asking a symbolic Armenian bird What's going on at home? What's the news? Um... And that little poem resonated deeply with Armenians at that moment. People were dying to know if any of their relatives were still alive, if anything was ever going to go back to what it was like before, and if it was really true that they were now stranded in America forever. If this was now going to be where they were left by fate. So that's what the song is.
4: I was looking through different things, people's memoirs from that era. And there was a, a guy named Hago Pasadorian, and he was a Armenian American. And um, he there was some story he wrote some short story about armenian picnics in like the 30s in new york city and people going out to some place called van cortland park in the bronx in new york city and um, having a picnic and they'd play all these records and the first one they'd play would be zabel panosian's gurung and it's like everyone Everyone had that everyone remembered that. You know, years later they remembered, oh yeah, in those days back in the twenties, when we put on records, that was the one record we'd always listened to. So so yeah, so it was extremely popular. I, I I don't know that it
3: was one of the main ways that people expressed what they were going through, but it's one of the main surviving expressions. Because the records themselves, they're stones. They're they're literal rocks. They will last for hundreds and hundreds of years way past you or me or anyone we know they'll survive past any file on your computer alex i'm so sorry um can i uh take a break for about five minutes i'm i'm really sorry
1: yeah of course do you you want, you want me to call back in five minutes uh yeah if you would that'd be great all right we'll get back to the story in a second so after Zabel's recording of Gorung sold so well, during the late 19-teens, she went on tour with this other hugely respected Armenian singer called Armenak Shamaradian. And throughout 1917, 1918 and 1919, uh, together they played to concert halls across the eastern United States to raise
4: money for the support of Armenian refugees. It was the first sort of massive, if you want to call it a foreign aid effort in American history where Americans were coming together and saying, hey, we need to help this group of suffering people overseas and send all them all this money to try and Red Cross workers and, you know, nurses and what missionaries and whatever, to try to help them. The first time that really happens is, is with the Armenian Genocide.
1: Harry described the way people saw Zabel during this period as sort of like the hometown hero, the local daughter makes good kind of thing. And there's this quote he read to me from a newspaper in Constantinople, uh, now Istanbul. It reads, quote, Mrs. Zabel Panosian is an Armenian talent who has received universal renown in the past five to six years. She's the only one among the Armenians who has been a true manifestation in America of the circumstances of the great Armenian depredation or genocide of 1915 and 1918, end
4: quote. So that's kind of how she was seen. She was the voice of, let's save all these orphan children.
3: So Zabel and Shamaradian go on tour and they just raise piles of money playing at concert halls uh, for the Near East Relief campaign. And then, in 1920, she gets a passport, and she says, when she applies for her passport, that she's going to look for family. She wants to know if family members are still alive or not, and the way to find out is to actually get on a ship and go places and find out. In the process of her travels, which take apparently about four years, 1920 to 24, it seems like, she goes and and she plays a lot of shows. She plays concerts um, all over uh, Britain, uh, France, Italy, Egypt, and significantly in France, outside Paris, she meets Gomitas.
1: I mentioned Gomitas earlier. He's the famous and well-loved Armenian priest who first transcribed Gorom.
3: He was a celibate priest. Gomitas Vadarpit. Vadarpit means celibate
1: priest. And there's this story that kind of gets told about him that he was the first person to record on paper folk music from small villages in Armenia and preserve them for prosperity.
2: It was very difficult for the Armenians to hang on to their folk culture because so many of the people that would have carried it had been murdered. And so... Gomitas went out into the countryside and he collected all these folk songs.
1: And he transcribed them, uh, wrote them down so that future generations of Armenians would be able to look back and understand part of their history through their folk music.
2: And of course, he was one of the people that went out and and found some of these folk tales. And and there were about 3,000 of these that he had written up. Um, We only have about 1,200 of them and Gurung was one of them. But um, his own biography is chilling, you know, when you read about what happened to him.
3: In 1914 when the first series of arrests occur uh, of Armenian uh, dignitaries preceding the genocide that night he is one of the people that's arrested and the fact of the matter is uh, he never really recovers so he's released from prison uh, after the genocide he survives and winds up moving to Paris but he spends the rest of his life in and out of mental institutions, and mostly in. So, in 1920, when Zabel goes to Europe, she goes to Paris, and of course she knows the Gomita's repertoire very well. You know, this is the, the man's a hero. He's an icon. So she finds out where he is in this mental institution outside of Paris, and they tell her... Um, yeah, maybe don't go. The, the, the man was broken by what he had seen and what he'd lived through.
1: But Zabel did go. She went with a couple of guys, um, other musicians who she was on tour with, and after the encounter, she retold the story to an Armenian magazine.
3: They see him there, and he's walking circles around the shrubbery talking to himself. And they slowly approach him, and he sort of looks up at her and Uh, smiles at her and says, hello, madam. And uh, she says, hello, reverend father. And um, they sit down together and he says to her, you know, you remind me of one of my students. And she says, oh yeah, I am one of your students, but from very far away. And uh, she says, look, I, I came to ask you something. Is it okay to sing your choral work solo by myself? And he looks at her and gets serious, and he says, "'However you feel it, you go ahead. "'You sing it however you want. "'Do it however you think is right.'" And she says, "'Oh, thank you.'" And "'I, you know, I don't want to wear you out. Uh, "'Can I come see you again?' She says, "'He says, "'Oh, yeah, you have to come back. "'You'll sing for me, and I'll sing for you. "'You should come back.'" And she says, "'Okay, I will.'" And she leaves... And she never does. And I wouldn't have either. Because that's terrifying. To be close up to somebody who's suffering like that, it's, uh, it's hard. And for it to be a hero and someone that you can't help, it's uh, it's very painful. And she says at the end of the uh, account, you know, someday together we'll sing, ganche grung, ganche grung, call out Crane, call out Crane. So she tours for a few years. She comes back to the United States about 1924 25. The Near East Relief Campaign was massively successful. It raised enormous amounts of money and it embedded American consciousness with the idea of the starving Armenian who needed your help. The
1: Armenian National Committee presents The Voice of Armenia. There are these famous posters from this era, these promotional posters for the Near East Relief Campaign. There's one of an Armenian woman wearing a kind of ragged gown and holding a baby in her arms. Underneath it says, you can't let us starve in red letters.
5: Yes, this is the voice of Armenia, a voice rising from the ashes of the dark days of
3: barbarism and aggression. It is the voice not of an individual, but the voice of a people, the voice of orphans and widows, whose loved ones perished under the yoke of the barbarian and the aggressor. And she goes back on tour in the U.S., but she changes her name. Now she's not Zabel Penosian. Now she's Zabel Aram. She takes her husband's first name as her last name, and she's not playing gronk anymore. She's singing opera and Western classical music. She is debuting herself not as an Armenian singer, but as a a Western classical performer, and taking on kind of a new identity. She does not record ever again. That's it for Zabel Panosian, 13 performances in about 12 months. And then Zabel Aram shows up, and Zabella Ram has this career and tours around the US and Europe, and she goes to Florida, she goes to Argentina, she goes to California. Um, and she's, you know, respected and doing okay, Um, but she's, I think, getting away from the, the Armenian identity so much. She doesn't want to be exotic, and she doesn't want to be starving. This is the voice of a wronged people, with a just cause before the courts of human rights
1: and justice. It is as if she starts over. And this is where Zabel's story starts to kind of fade away, After she stopped recording and touring, magazines and newspapers stopped writing about her, and she kind of stopped appearing at events that were documented by historians. And so by the end of the 1930s, there's very little to go on.
3: And by the 1940s, we don't really know. Certainly by the 1950s, it's just a big, empty hole. We have nothing to go on from 1950 to about 1986.
1: Ian has a theory, uh, and it is just a theory, but... He thinks that as Zabel uh, began to reach uh, her 40s and 50s, that she just wasn't able to sing in the same way anymore, so she stopped. It's
3: not only the skill and the training and the repertoire and the intellect that they're being paid for, it's the physical instrument, which is their actual body. It's hard to maintain that instrument for that long, you know?
1: It seems like after she retreated from the public eye, she settled down into a quiet and private life in Manhattan. By
3: 1940, by the Second World War, she is firmly middle-aged. 1940, she's 50 years old, thereabouts. She only appears actually in, I think, in 1950, she turns up playing piano on a children's record. Once she's getting to be, a you know, retirement age, senior citizen, you know? The whole second half of her life, she wasn't even
1: singing anymore. Zaba had children, but no grandchildren. So when her children died, the family lineage ended. And it seems like she didn't even want to talk about her singing days a lot as she got older, to the point where her extended family barely even knew about the career she'd had.
5: I never put one and one together, you know? I never placed her as being a, uh, a popular singer. To me, you know, I looked at her as as an aunt and not really uh, following her profession. You
1: know? The tape's a little scratchy here, uh, but this is Varujan Korentz.
5: My wife says, think of Father John and put a V in front of it. So it's Varujan.
1: And his mom was a first cousin to Zabel's family. He told me that when his mother emigrated to the U.S. after the Armenian genocide, Zabel's sister Navat was the one who took her in as a refugee.
5: And it was there in Navar's house uh, with Zabel, where they introduced my father to my mother. And that's how
1: uh, we got involved. And Varjan says that he was always kind of vaguely aware that Zabel was a singer, but it wasn't until Ian published that first compilation in 2010 that he listened to her properly.
5: I'm, I'm taken back. I... I because of uh, Eon, I listen to that and I, and I pass it around. It's just absolutely uh, beautiful. I mean, it's just a, you know, a, a warming thing because here's somebody that I know is on a record and, it, and it's just outstanding, um, outstanding music.
1: All this time I'd kind of been thinking of Zabel only as this great singer. In my head, she was always on a stage in glamorous ballrooms or touring Europe. But Varajan's memories of her are totally different. He told me about how when he was around 12, his mum would drive him from their home in Rhode Island uh, at the weekends to visit his aunt. And when they'd arrived, Zabel would sometimes be there too.
5: She was a, Zabel was a soft-spoken woman. I never, never, ever heard her uh, raise her voice or say anything, anything bad about anybody. She was pleasant. She was generous. Uh, she was a loving woman. Always complimentary, uh, always nice to be with. And, and, uh, and say, we, we, just, we just loved her. My sister and I thought uh, very, very highly of her.
1: But when I asked about what became of Zabel, how she spent her later years, he told me he wasn't so sure.
5: I'm going to say sometime during the mid-1950s, something took place. And at this date, I, I don't know really what happened but uh Zabel uh has a disagreement with her sister Navart, to the point where neither one of them spoke to each other and and uh, we did not uh, uh see Zabel because of that that fight that took place between the two sisters now saying that about the late nineteen fifties, Zabel began a correspondence. With both uh, my sister and I, and carried that on right on till the her deathbed. Birthdays, holidays, Christmas time—we used to get long notes from her, uh, wishing us the best. You know, the woman was a just a, a loving woman that um, you know we we certainly miss so.
3: The last photo I saw of her is her passport photo from the 40s where she went to um, Argentina or Brazil. I mean, you know, she's, uh, she's what, 50? And, you know, she's smiling. Uh, her makeup is nice. Her hair is really curly and piled up on top of her head, black hair. Um, her eyes are a little squinty. She's getting, uh, she's getting a little puffy around the eyes. <laughs> I'm the same
4: way. You asked me at the beginning, what did I think of Zabel? I thought she was a very powerful, mystical sort of singer, almost mystical. And why is it important to me? Because it's our history. I mean, this is, this is, um, I guess I identify very strongly as Armenian-American. And so this is our history in this country. These are not, these are not songs that people sing anymore. Um, And even the way she's singing them isn't the way people sing them anymore. And so I just think, in that sense, she's very interesting, and she's a, she's a window to the sort of the past.
3: I think that even in the teens, uh, Zabelle had ambitions um, to be a, a star and an artist who was taken seriously. But, you know, Columbia only ever releases her on the E-series. The E-series, again, is the ethnic artist category at Columbia Records. She's stuck on records as an ethnic artist, not as a American artist. And we just, we just don't have the, the memory apparatus in our culture to, um, to keep track of this stuff. It definitely doesn't get written into the story of the United States, right? No immigrant musician of which there were hundreds of thousands of recordings made in the early 20th century, America does not write immigrant musicians into our story of who we are and what we did. We as Americans have this uh, very complicated and um, not great relationship to the idea of immigration. We demand of immigrants that they become capital A A American as fast as possible leave the homeland behind, stop speaking that other language, become American, and become American fast. And we have required people to lose their hyphenated identities to a great extent for decades and decades. Um, You know, don't be Armenian American. Don't be Irish American. Don't be Jewish American. Be American if you can. Um, So... That's the whole idea, is that it will take a second life, that by presenting it to people with her story, it will take root in their hearts, and it will live on. Thankfully, the records are still there, you know, and we're just trying to learn the initial story. We won't get it all right, you know, we'll miss stuff. But the idea is that we'll lay the table for whoever succeeds us, if anyone's gonna remember there will be something to start from, at least. Because I think she's very good. I think she's she's a real artist.
0: This episode was produced by Alex Atak with editorial support from Dana Balutz, Tamara Rassamni, Zena Duidor, and myself, Hibba Fisher. Sound design by Alex Atak and mixing by Mohamed Khayzat. Fact-checking also by Zena Doudar and Bella Ibrahim is our marketing manager. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network.
1: Thank you also to everyone who spoke to me for this story. Uh, Ian Nagoski, Harry Kazilian, uh, Marion Mesrobian mccurdy and Varajan Currents. Also to Haru Arikalian, who's been helping Ian and Harry with their research. And thank you to Ian for letting me use his remastered versions of Zabel's music throughout the episode. And also to Harry Kazilian uh, for letting me use his original music. You can follow Ian's work and find the many, many other stories that he's helping preserve at his website, uh, canary-records.bandcamp.com. Marian Mesrobian McCurdy's book is called Sacred Justice, The Voices and Legacy of the Armenian Operation Nemesis. I really recommend it. It's brilliant. I also want to give a shout out to another podcast and then we're done. Uh, They're not paying me to say this, but I first heard about Ian's work through this show and I feel like I want to mention them. It's called Ephemeral. They make these uh, really beautiful uh, kind of immersive radio documentaries. If you like KC, I think you'll like them too. Type in Ephemeral podcast on Google and it will come up.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with a new story. See you then.